Hi, and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising, a podcast dedicated to the small to medium-sized nonprofits and the topics and issues facing them today. I'm your host, Liz Hack. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk with Mary Foley. She is the executive director of the Merriman House Domestic Crisis Center in Paducah, Kentucky. That's in the western part of, of the state. We're going to talk about crisis. We're going to talk about how we can move through crisis and how she uses tools and techniques in her nonprofit to get through something that we're all getting through together for the very first time, and that's the pandemic. We're going to hear from her about how her nonprofit joined with her board, volunteers, and staff to do some things that were outside of the box, outside of their norm, to make sure that as many people in the nonprofit and her survivors that she shelters were safe. Thanks for listening. Here's Mary. Hello and welcome to Small Shop Fundraising. I am your host, Liz Hack, and today on the show we have Mary Foley. Mary is the Executive Director for the Merriman House Domestic Crisis Center in Paducah, Kentucky. And more importantly, Mary and I know each other from a project that my firm worked with her nonprofit on about three years ago, a capital campaign to expand her shelter. And that really was the beginning of a wonderful relationship with Mary and myself about what, three years ago, Mary, is that right? Yes, it's been, it's been a good three years, probably closer to four now, oh, time goodness. flies by. So I can't get enough Mary in my life, and I wanted to make sure our listeners had the opportunity to to be introduced to Mary and to hear from her, her experiences as an executive director of a crisis center in Kentucky. So thank you so much, Mary, for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, Liz, thank you so much for the offer. I was so excited just to hear. I would get to spend some time with you and get acquainted with those that are listening to you. Well, thank you, Mary. I, uh, I wanted to get us started by ha- introducing you to the audience. So, Mary, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what the Merriman House does for your clients? I would love to. So, I reside here in western Kentucky, so we're on the far western tip, and I reside here with my family, my husband, and two boys, and life is busy for me as it is for everyone else, and I really uh, have always had a heart for people. Um, I used to get a nickname, Liz, in high school called Defender of the People, and I didn't really really know what that meant, except for I always found myself on the, maybe the opposite side of the argument, defending those that I felt were either being wronged in some way, or I'm I'm sure the- I get it. I know, I see it. Moment, right? Where, yeah. (laughs) I'm sure the crises of the moment were so small, but they felt so big, so- I've just, that's just been my heart and my passion. And, and so my training is actually in clinical psychology and I had some time to sit across from those carrying maybe some of life's deep wounds or wrestling with questions that kept them up at night and stumbled my way literally uh, into an, a nonprofit um, as their director of education. And so I almost said no to the job because it, it wasn't clinical psychology, but I was interested in the work of the whole. And and so my job was to go to elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, and and talk to them about safety and and healthy relationships and those kinds of things. And 
And as sort of luck would have it or divine providence, however you want to frame it, I'll, I'll go with divine providence. Um, there came an opening for the executive director position there and the organization was in a really tough spot and I was young and knew nothing. The only change there is I'm old and <laughs> mostly nothing. And uh, anyway, the board of directors took a, I mean, looking back now, oh my word, they took a risk. I had no experience. I had a degree that hung on the wall that didn't tell me anything about how to do nonprofit and they rallied around me and, and helped me. And so did the team at the time. And my heart fell in love with nonprofit and um, systems work and individual work and community work. And, and over time, I have found myself the director of either a sexual assault, child advocacy, or a domestic violence program. And so here in 2020, older, hopefully a little more wiser. Um, and here I sit working with the Merriman House. And in short, our mission is to save, build, and change lives of those affected by domestic violence. So we are a 24-hour crisis center with a whole host of programming to support victims from the beginning to the middle to the end and helping them reintegrate uh, back into the community, living a life free of violence um, so they can go forth and hopefully turn their, their, their pain into their passion. That's beautiful. Uh, one thing I do want to make sure our listeners know is that we are both alumni of Western Kentucky University, Go Tops. Yes. And you are just steps away from your doctorate. Can you want to tell the audience a little bit about that? Well, it will be in a PsyD, so a Doctor of Psychology and Applied Psychology. But I will say, Liz, if your listeners are, 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 to, are to hear me correctly today, or we may do together, I, if you want to sum up my luck when you sit down and interact with me, I was set to graduate with my doctor, in the, and, and then we had a global pandemic. Yeah. And really, that's just... That just says so much. That's some luck for you, isn't it? <laughs> it is. So, you know... We'll get there when we get there, but it's just sort of par for the course. But right. hey, we just smile and, and keep going. I don't know what else keep to do. Keep moving forward because nothing's going to stop for us. Not even no. a pandemic. Not even a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but congratulations whenever that actually occurs. Um, and we can uh, celebrate. I'm always up for celebrating. So just let know, me know. I know you are. <laughs> I will. I will let you know. We'll Zoom celebrate if we have to. Perfect. But I, I appreciate that. I appreciate no So talk to us a little bit about crisis at the Merriman House and, and what that looked like maybe before the mm -hmm. pandemic and how that might have changed now that we're trying to find our way through this this pandemic of and reopening our, our Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Liz, I've thought a lot about kind of what what the topic of crisis since you talked to me about doing this podcast and honestly crisis really does have some some staple qualities or some characteristics about it and so before the pandemic you know that crisis might look like a middle of the night phone call or it might look like an eviction notice for a client it might look like a utility bill getting cut off or a protective order that needs to be served it might look like the discovery that's that a family member founds out that someone they love is in a domestic violence relationship or it may be dealing with secondary trauma or burnout or a staff member who has been on the front lines maybe longer than they needed to be without their proper protective equipment if i could uh, be so bold as to use that term and so 
I think for Merriman House, crisis um, is in actually in our name. Um, and so we work really hard here to acknowledge that crisis does happen, but it cannot be the constant state in which we find ourselves. And so we renamed actually our crisis department to, to crisis response. So we are responding to crisis, but we don't want to find ourselves in a continual and perpetual state of crisis which I think is what you're hoping to touch on today with the pandemic. Absolutely. I think that is really important for people to, this is a long process. It's not, mm-hmm. um, it's not going to be something that, that is going to go away tomorrow or the next time that the governor allows something to mm-hmm. reopen. It's something that's going to be with us for a very long time. And so, yes, we can't consider, we can't sit in it, like you say, mm-hmm. uh, and let that be our anchor us down. So Mm -hmm. can you talk more about how people might find their way out of this crisis or tools? Sure. So, you know, I I think that crisis in and of itself really describes both an internal state that we sometimes have within ourselves. And so everything outside of us maybe is not in a state of crisis, but we are. So that could be a diagnosis that we hear or or something that we go through, right, that's very private Mm -hmm. to just us. And so there's that internal state of crisis. And then I think there are those times when folks find themselves completely at peace, right? One moment and then the next moment something external happens that throws them into a state of crisis. So maybe a house fire or a flood or, you know, an earthquake, some sort of natural disaster. It turns sort of their world upside down. And then I think we have those places of crisis where it's both where we're in an internal state of crisis and we're in an external state of crisis and sort of what do we do? And so I think for your listeners, people are all over the continuum there. And I really think that maybe that would be the first thing I would say is that crisis is the continuum. We can kind of move up and down that continuum. And it's really important that we remember that we are moving um, and that we are moving out of crisis. So the moment crisis hits us, from that moment where we become in a state of crisis, whether internal, external, or both, we are moving toward the end of that crisis. And so that frame of mind is really important. And so it kind of helps us to know whether we need to do a sprint and we need to get immediately out or we are needing to brace for a marathon where we're going to need to pull on some endurance and we're going to need to pull on some good self-care and we're going to need to pull on some resources and some support systems. Because I really think um, where crisis is concerned, one of the biggest tools that we have in our arsenal is number one, hope. Hope and resiliency carry us through so much that we will bounce back. Um, We have that built within us. And then there are those other supports like our faith or our family um, or our support network or agencies like Merriman House that stand ready to step into a situation and give assistance. So for crisis, I think we've got to remember it's a continuum and that we're moving and that each type of crisis or scenario, whether it's short-term or long-term, is going to require us to pull on different resources. So what has the Merriman House been doing uh, as you move through this crisis and that we're always moving towards the end of crisis. How has that, mm-hmm. how have you all been able to move toward it with maybe your, your clients, but also with your staff? Mm-hmm. I will tell you, it has been one of the biggest challenges of my career in terms of um, how to manage something like this when maybe our organization who sort of prides ourselves right, on, on being a response center realized that we were 
maybe a little more ill-equipped than we had originally would have liked to have seen. Um, and so what we began to do uh, early on, uh, as you know, Liz, I, I'm a bit of a planner. I like things written down. I, I like a good concrete plan. And I kind of work from my sort of natural response to crisis. And maybe some of your listeners can relate to this. Um, my first go-to is I want to know the worst case scenario. And if I can wrap my head around the worst case, then I tend to be able to work my way back much better. And so honestly, the Merriman House, because I happen to be in the leadership chair, assembled the leadership team. So that's another example of those tools, right? Bringing around other people, other minds. And I just began to share with them and even with the board of directors what my worst case scenario was. And from there, we put in a lot of long hours that we developed a pretty robust pandemic response plan. And so what it's looked like for Merriman House is a really clear outlined approach about where we're heading with a whole lot of flexibility built in, but some just practical examples. Merriman House wasn't set up to go digital. You know, we weren't set up to do telehealth and, and, and all of those things from a financial perspective from how do you push paper uh, to get invoices signed so that expenses can continue to be incurred and needs met, to how do we isolate in a communal living environment yeah. to keep our clients safe, not only from their perpetrator, but from this invisible, if you would, uh, force that we were all against. And Mary, can I just ask real quick for, sure. you all, did you ever stop intake of your crisis for crisis victims or survivors no no, no. So never the never Merriman completely shut down open. never completely shut down and so i think that was our our charge was to how do we stay open providing those core services and so for core for us was those life-saving services how could people hear somebody on the other end of the crisis line how can they come into shelter if they need it how can they be represented in court if they have a protective order and how can we make sure they're literally fed, that we feed the ones that live here and that we are available? And so for us, Liz, um, it really did look like making the things that had to be telehealth, telehealth, and the things that we could let go of, let go of. And how could we rally the team around a really clear vision of how we're going to do this? And I am happy to say uh, we never did close our doors. That's amazing because you just don't know uh, who, who's going to come through those doors. And you mm -hmm. really have to have a, a pandemic response plan every single day. This is not mm -hmm. for when uh, next week when, you, mm -hmm. you know, I talked to a library system last week and they, they can prepare for when their, their visitors come in. But really, mm -hmm. you, with a crisis shelter like the Merriman House, you just don't know, right? You just mm -hmm. are never sure when someone's going to be in a mm -hmm. situation where they're going to call upon a health and human service organization like like yourselves. So such a such a big responsibility. What other things did you all do to prepare for such for services to continue? Well, I think our worst case scenario was what happens if we had a positive case right. of COVID-19 in the shelter um, and how would we quarantine and how would we isolate folks and how would we ask that of staff to come in and to work in that environment and and really our worst case scenario was met with a very timely addition to our board of directors uh, we had an internal medicine doctor on our Wonderful. on our board and boy she was instrumental in helping us brainstorm but I guess to your point to your primary question, we actually moved all of our clients off site into a residence type extended stay hotel. 
um, for a period of time, and we had staff at that site 24-7, and we operated out of that um, so that we could give each an individual family and individual an opportunity to be able to quarantine and self-isolate as we needed. Um, and then um, from that place, we began to work with our board and, and, of course, follow the governor and local emergency management teams daily to figure out how long that needed to stay. And so what we did was we um, we had we had iPads that we had 14 iPads because the board uses iPads now and we had 14 iPads. And what we did is we had two floors at this hotel and we allowed folks to check those iPads out. They would be disinfected and put back in the rotation. And we set up telehealth with advocates and therapists and housing teams via that way for our residential folks. And then for our non-residential folks, because we cover eight counties, we moved that team to a telehealth model. And so we would join courtrooms via Zoom and we would um, also meet with clients, you know, that were in our outreach areas the same way. And so we we really kind of got a rhythm with, with that. Our kitchen team came actually to our campus and prepared meals here and then delivered them to the hotel. So our food uh, was handled that way. We did Instacart for a while and let folks put in special orders for things that they might need to be delivered. And so we just began to kind of work through each aspect of our services. What would they look like if they weren't in person or face-to-face? -face? What things did we consider core and what things were add-ons, if you would, that we could let go of? Um, and over the past two months, we've now moved most back to campus um, and added things that you see everywhere else, you know, big shields and temperature checks and PPE and and all of that. And we're we're working now probably at about a 33% uh, at any one time um, staff on campus so that we do have a plan B and a plan C should we um, get a positive case. Um, every client is tested before they come um, and they're quarantined until we get their results. If, they, if they're unable to um, go through that test or for some reason they don't want to go through that test, that is fine. We then quarantine for 14 days at an off-site location before we bring into communal living. Well, it sounds like you all really started thinking way outside of your box, way outside of mm -hmm. what typically is asked of a domestic crisis shelter to be able to continue service and care for those who are in most need and, and most vulnerable in your community. So uh, was that all a part of your your plan that you had created, your response plan, or, or was some of this on the fly? Did you have to be nimble and and was that do you feel like that really helped you through the crisis? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, the pandemic plan was really just chapter one. Right. And as we needed to add chapters, we did. And I really think you're speaking to another tool right in your toolbox mm. for managing crisis, whether it's internal or external or both. There does have to be a flexibility of mind that things may not look like they once looked and that's okay. We don't have to keep trying to fit the same thing into the box because the box is totally different now. And so being nimble and flexible in what you're able to do, what's manageable, you know, there's a whole lot of things we wanted to do, but only some things we were able to do and, and do it from a manageable perspective. So, you know, Merriman House is one of 15 member programs across the state. And so our state coalition was certainly helpful as we kind of met every other week to kind of check in and see where people are. But I do think Merriman House uh, was able to provide guidance to other programs as they navigated. But each area is different. 
And again, same with crisis for your listeners, everybody is in a different space. And so that, that um, support network, building others around you, getting input from others and being flexible um, is so important and keeping your eye on the target. And what is our target? To save, build and change the lives of those affected by domestic violence. So that's our goal. How we get there has looked a whole lot different than it did, you know, in January. Sure, absolutely. And, and it also sounds like it wasn't just the staff that jumped in to support the, and be nimble and, and pivot, but it also sounds like your board was instrumental. Mm-hmm. And all of our listeners should have some sort of a board. And so mm-hmm. can you talk about engaging your board and mm-hmm. implementing them during the first part of this crisis, what their roles are as you move forward? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I've always said, well, I say always, the first five years I did this probably didn't have enough knowledge to know <laughs> what to say to a board or how they worked. But over time, I've come to firmly believe that the board must be in partnership with the executive director, but the executive director has to know where he or she ends and the board has to know where they begin mm-hmm. um, and vice versa. And so for me, it was working through committees as appropriate of certainly in a time like this, what was most manageable was to work with the executive committee because remember these are volunteers that have their own disruptions in their workforce and in their finances and in their own maybe family lives. So we tried to work within the executive committee. So we worked with proper authority, I think was really important. And then sort of zooming out and taking a look at who sits on the board and where are their expertise. So, you know, to get us up and going telehealth, we have, you know, great tech people on our board that were able to kind of guide that conversation. Um, And then of course, like I said, Gosh, I mean, so timely was the addition of this physician who really was able to put me to rest, if you would, and and really open to my heart. I I, I teased the the staff a little bit and the board. I I woke up one night at 11. I didn't wake up. I couldn't go to sleep. It was after 11, 12, and I was so worried, Liz, that I had this great written plan, but one positive case and none of it was gonna matter right. because people were gonna be scared and, and survivors weren't gonna to wanna to come in and staff might be in harm's way and clients might be in harm's way and I could not rest. And so I actually sent a, a very lengthy email to this physician who was relatively new to the board and I just said, "What? this isn't gonna work and here's what I'm asking of you. I'm asking you to help me move all of these clients into a hotel and I know it would be really expensive, but here's the cost if we don't. And she heard me um, and she and she encouraged me and she joined me in, in that. And so I think from a board perspective to an executive director, it's to communicate with them regularly about things that they cannot know because they're not uh, in the weeds every day, which yeah. they should be, but things that can also be of a great liability to the organization and helping them do those cost benefit analyses. And then also realizing that at the end of the day, right, they're the governing body. And so together, I think just in that health of that relationship, we've we've fared pretty well. You know, I just have to brag on you for a little bit, Mary. I, I've always been in awe of your ability to be vulnerable and share your concerns and ask for help. And no matter what day or time of the day it is, if you've got a concern for your mission, your nonprofit, your clients, and you don't think that they're going to be served the right way, you are on a you're a woman on a mission. 
you're going to, you are going to get the right answer and you aren't going to stop until the answer is the right one for the people that you serve. And that is a commendable trait and characteristic that we all can learn from is to, to just put aside your fear and do the next right thing. And I, I do think you do that in your job. And I, you know, I appreciate it and I see it. Well, I appreciate that very much. I just, gosh, at the end of the day, whew, you know, um, we're all doing really hard work and we're doing the very best that we can. And it's, there's too much at stake to make it about me or about you or, or whatever. So I appreciate those kind of work. Absolutely. And so just to kind of wrap up our conversation about crisis and, and, how nonprofits can move forward through this, it sounds like there are a lot of relatable things that small to medium-sized nonprofits can take from our conversation today. I kind of wanted to wrap up the tools that folks could work on as they work through their pandemic plans and their response Mm -hmm. plans. And I heard, you know, being nimble and I heard communicating. Can we go back through some of the others? Absolutely. You know, I think the first thing is to have a plan. And if you have sort of been caught up in this crisis, I think that's sort of that evidence that you're caught up in the crisis as a perpetual state versus we had a crisis that we have to anchor here just a minute and get a plan for how to navigate this crisis. So I think the first thing is if you don't have a plan, it's time to to get one that's written down that can be referenced and referred back to. So I think that's really important. Um, and then I think it's to any nonprofit, right? What is your and what does it require of you? And so over time, I think we can have some mission drift and we have these great programs and these great ideas. And it's not that they're bad or that they shouldn't continue, but in a time of crisis, it's really about what is manageable. Right. Um, what is manageable for me to handle? What is manageable for the staff to handle? What is manageable for the clients? And that's where we're going to put our energy and resources. So another example in this plan is we moved to what we called essential staff or services status. And so what that ultimately means is if we can't staff the crisis line or if we can't staff the shelter, or if we can't run security or if we can't feed people, then we're not going to pay or allow anybody else to schedule for any non-essential service. So all hands on deck to make sure the essential things are taken care of first and then from there. So if that's your finances, you know, if it's letting go of some things to bring us back to the mission, if it's around fundraising, if it's around telling your donors, you know, we got a lot of questions, you know, what do you need? Well, we didn't take, we didn't want to take things that were non-essential, right? We take those essential things and work out from there. So I think having a plan, I think um, being nimble around that plan, I think making sure you're true to your mission and remembering what is manageable. That's really sometimes your guide. Um, Can we do this? Can we do this well? And what is the risk benefit? for not doing it or doing it, whatever side, you know, needs to be explored. All right. Well, thank you so much for our conversation about crisis and how it can relate to small to medium-sized nonprofits and what tactics they should do as we move forward together uh, as a community and as, as a nation. I do have a few common questions that I like to ask my guests. And I didn't tell you what they were, so uh, take your time answering these if you need. What is one thing that you love about working in a nonprofit? And what is one thing that you love less? Not something that you <laughs> hate. I don't like that. But something that is not as not as well loved about working uh-huh. in a nonprofit. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, so I can, I think I can get to those pretty quickly because I usually revisit them about 55 times a day um, <laughs> during this pandemic. So what I love about working for a nonprofit is working for a nonprofit, meaning we work we work for a cause, uh-huh. not necessarily for a company or somebody else's bottom line, not that there's anything wrong with that, but working for a nonprofit affords me and hopefully our team an opportunity to do a lot of diverse things. So, you know, whether that's informing how operations happen across the state or whether it's a local board or engaging with a local community member or or sitting one-on-one across from somebody that needs you, it's just the diversity. And at the end of the day, that feels really good to work for a cause that you believe in. So I think for me, that's what I love about working for a nonprofit. What I love less is, is the weight that sometimes comes with a nonprofit. And I just went through this today, actually, I was thinking, gosh, what would it be like if if I wasn't managing a short staff situation or I wasn't having to worry about a 2 a.m. call, you know, about something that was going on that felt frustrating for me? Or what if I wasn't having to watch that bottom line so closely? Or what if I wasn't having to wear these different hats? So I think what I love less is the very thing I love most, which is the diversity. But diversity can also mean lots of moving parts with limited resources to adapt. Right, I understand that completely. Like very Mm. small businesses, I feel, have the same types of love and love Mm -hmm. less things as (laughs) as a nonprofit, no matter the size of the nonprofit does. What about one piece of advice? So we've talked a lot lot about things and tools that small to medium-sized nonprofits could use, but if there was just one piece of advice one thing that a person would take away from our conversation or even your experience as a whole, what would it be? You know, when I was a little girl and then when I was a teenage girl and then a young adult girl and then a middle-aged adult girl, my mom still says the same thing to me and it still annoys me and motivates me the same way as it did the first time I remember her saying it. Um, No matter what the situation, because I tend to be rigid and I tend to be very matter of fact and this is what I think and she would always say to me, be flexible, Mary, be flexible. And it seemed like such an easy thing to say and such a hard thing for me to do. And I think in nonprofit work, you have to be flexible. You have to bend and pull and you have to be open to other people's ideas that might have been different than yours. And you have to be able to um, look at things from a different perspective and realize that sometimes people know better than you. And so asking for that help or changing that plan or reversing course is I think sometimes one of the most underrated skills when we're looking for folks to work in nonprofit is flexibility of thinking, of problem solving, of emotionality, and of of praise, honestly, to praise that quality in other people. So I guess as I sit on sort of in this place of the pandemic response plan, I can hear my mom sort of saying, way to go. See how much flexibility helped you here. So I guess my advice would be flexible. That's great advice, I think, for sure. And last question, and then we'll wrap up. What is your favorite resource that you lean on as an executive director that you use maybe daily or during the pandemic, even before, or what you might continue to use now that you've started using it in during the pandemic? What's a favorite resource? Well, now, Liz, you're going to laugh at this because... Oh, I can't wait. 
much <laughs> sense because you're gonna be like, oh, what? wow, that's so sad. That's what you're gonna be thinking, but you're not gonna say that. But you know what? I, I, have, I have come to appreciate the use of technology in general as my greatest resource, huh. whether that's Zoom or Microsoft Teams, which you didn't even think I knew about because I didn't, I didn't. know about that last week. I didn't. Um, wow. or, or whether it is an app that reminds people how to breathe well, oh or whether it is just, you know, adding uh, things to your educational resources of things you can learn for other people like podcasts. I mean, as, as silly as that sounds, I did not appreciate technology in my role. I didn't consider it my area. I just sort of housed it to the side. But man, how technology can help us be flexible and work smarter, but not harder. Well, Mary Foley, I am very happy to hear that, Swanee, you have a new resource and it's technology. A new resource. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> I know you're wanting some knock your socks off article no. or book, but at the end of the day for me, <laughs> I can zoom now all by myself. I'm so I can proud. Do things and it's just like and if and if um, if Susan Griffin is listening uh, to this, it's just like reaching up to the sky, right, reaching and pulling up. the internet Go right on. down. It, it's just it's fabulous. And and one thing that I have learned is to be humble about the fact that I don't know as much about technology as I thought I did, and <laughs> leaning on and asking for help from perfect strangers online to help me with like this podcast or mm -hmm. turning on my microphone or mm -hmm. <laughs> doing mm -hmm. things that I thought I knew, but just being humble enough to ask for the silly, yes. the small help that, or big help as I, as it might be now that yes. I know that I'm not as good yes. with technology as I thought. So I appreciate yes. Thank you, Mary Foley. I really You're welcome. <laughs> and your legacy lives on Liz, just yes. in that answer, right? Your yes. legacy lives on. <laughs> Mary, it's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much again for being a part of Small Shop Fundraising today and taking the time through this very trying time for our state and our Commonwealth and the rest of the nation. This has been Small Shop Fundraising with Mary Foley. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.